Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme first and foremost today by Martin Blinko. Martin is the Guest Relations Manager at the Mermaid Inn. Martin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure, Martin. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for business leaders, leaders of organisations, institutions, governments as well, of course, to try and chart a course through this unprecedented crisis we're all going through. Tell me, for somebody working in the hospitality industry, how has it been trying to navigate the last few months? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. It, it's been, it has been a real challenge and a real sort of, um, you have to think on your, on your feet. We were told on the Friday evening that we were due to shut within 24 hours. And we've got 54 members of staff. So that involved having to explain to those 54 members of staff that um, the jobs we were hoping to maintain them, to keep them. We had, we had a meeting to explain all that and to point that the business was in a strong position that really, if they would leave us to get on with it for the next, whatever it took, we would make sure that business was there for them when it returned. And then for the next 100 days, and two of us lived in the hotel and maintained it and looked after it just to ensure that when the time came, we were ready to go again. Certainly seems like it's been a bit of a difficult time. And looking back over the uh, the pandemic um, as you've experienced it so far, Martin, would you say that despite those challenges that there is anything that you've taken away as a learning curve from all of this? I think the one thing we, we, we saw from right from the start and it's really been sort of vindicated is about communication. I mean, throughout that period, we, first of all, maintained communication with all of our staff, with regular updates as to where we were, what we were doing, and then to our existing customers and potential customers, we did a daily Instagram, daily Facebook, just keeping people up to date with, we were still here, we were still doing things, and throughout that period, we were doing work ourselves on the building just to make sure it was safe and secure. Concerning safety procedures to sort of continue operating um, safely and also to begin reopening safely over the course of the year, uh, the next few weeks and months, of course, that, as we've already started seeing some businesses opening their doors again. Have you been satisfied, Martin, that you've known throughout this exactly what's been expected of you and that continues to be the case going forward? Is there really a clear path for you there now? Um, I think... It was a bit unclear, really, because it was only through our links through 1066 Country and through the UK hospitality that we, about middle of May, got to hear that there was going to be a framework um, of guidance about how business might reopen. And that was really important for us to be able to sort of plan for re- returning on July the 4th. And so it's been a bit of a sort of mission, really, because what was happening, we were getting drafts, and then within a couple of days, those drafts were being updated. And therefore, we want to update ourselves mm. and re-communicate back to members of staff about what we need to do. In fact, one of the items was a sort of track and trace process. It wasn't until on the Friday night at 7 o'clock on July the 3rd that we finally discovered through um, Visit Britain what, what data we actually had to collect. 
So, you know, it really has been at times a bit of a sort of struggle just to make sure everything that we needed to do. Because we are very conscientious about trying to do the right thing, and that sometimes makes you even more concerned about getting it right. And thinking about sort of how sort of difficult it's been to maybe sort of get that information sometimes, would you say that you've had to really sort of strike a balance between not just being proactive and having sort of those procedures in place, but also having to be reactive and adjust yourselves at very short notice, but also in a measured fashion? Because that's quite challenging, isn't it? Sort of trying to find a balance between those approaches. It is. And it's back to that idea about communication. You might underneath be a bit concerned, a bit worried and, and whatever, However, that can't be communicated to the people that you're looking after. All the time, mm. you've got to sound assured and focused so that they feel confident and secure that what you're telling them is the right thing. So a lot of the time, it is about reassurance of people, about you as a leader, you know which direction you're going in. Mm. So I think that's been a really important lesson for us in, in being able to communicate and manage You know, 54 members of staff who come from a variety of backgrounds and have a variety of different skills. It comes with a lot of pressure, that doesn't it? Trying to keep the communication channels open and keep the reassurance sort of flowing, even when the information out there isn't always clear. But also, I suppose when you're an employee within a business, the natural reaction is to look above you in that hierarchical ladder for that direction and inspiration as and when you need it. You look to your executives, you look to your managers. But when you are the one at the top of the tree, as it were, and there is nobody there above you, it can feel a bit of a lonely place, can't it? So when you're in your position and you need that little bit of sort of inspiration from certain areas where do you look to for that as and when you need it i think what we have the the, the um, there's three or four owners of the business and two of those owners have been involved with the hotel for over 30 years so they have a lot of experience a lot of background a lot of local trust as well and i think it's been the ability to bounce off each other and support each other through the process has been really important Mm. and having that ability to sort of sound off to each other about ideas and the best way forward, that has been a really sort of, I think, a key part of keeping on even keel, because at times a certain individual might feel a bit unhappy or whatever, but then the others sort of support them, help them see them through. It's a bit of a support network, really, mm. and I think that's a really crucial part of, of why this business has been able to sort of react and come back, is that sort of group team approach. And speaking of emotions, of course, just how important has it been safeguarding the mental health of not just yourself, but also all of those people associated with the mermaid in? Because mental health, well-being, that's been very at the fore. It's been very much at the forefront of our thoughts during this entire pandemic, really, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it comes back to reassurance right from the start. There was a clear message from the people who owned the business that it would come back. It had the financial um, uh, support and strength, but nowhere it was how it's going to manage itself. And because those owners have almost, it almost becomes like part of the family in itself, it's almost a person, the mermaid, they knew that those people would be here for it. And uh, as I said, two owners, uh, we, we stayed here for 100 days, slept here, let, you know, painted it, looked after it. So that when the time came on July the 4th, we were ready to go again. I know, of course, it's been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, the COVID-19 pandemic. But do you think that this sort of experience of crisis management is ultimately going to benefit this generation of business leaders? Because we often hear it said that times of adversity do bring out the best in people. And we are really seeing that in British industry at the moment, aren't we? I think it does. I think experience is a great tutor. 
I think when you've been through something like this and with everything else that's going on around you, it's not just your business. You look at your local community, you look at your own country, you look at all the issues that other people have to go through. And sometimes you have to reflect on some of the challenges you face are probably not as great as others, but you still manage mm-hmm. to overcome those challenges. And here we are, you know, sort of 10, 12 days back into restart. And it's almost like a sort of V recovery here. You know, we almost stopped on, on March 21st. We've restarted July the 4th, and we've never been so overtaken by so many bookings and um, phone calls and people coming and staying here. It's been quite a sort of mm. a remarkable comeback. So it's been quite the um, sort of return to almost normal for yourselves. I mean, there's been a lot of demand, um, of course, in services since the uh, the business reopened its doors. And thinking about now what that sort of future might bring as we decisively adjust to the new normal over the uh, the next few months, Martin, what do you envision being on the horizon for yourself, for the Mermaid Inn? And what do you really hope to achieve as a business as we embrace the challenges of that new normal? I think the, the aspiration really is to sort of uh, take advantage of this sort of um, the bounce back. Because I think there will be those people with three months pent up of not being out, not doing things, and still gaining confidence. They'll be coming back out, wanting to do things, see things. And it's about reassuring them that coming here, it's a safe environment. We're going to look after them. You know, we've got a very clear sort of COVID nineteen protocol that we're explaining to people, so that. For the next two or three months, we'll really focus on that. So I suppose the other thought in the back of our heads is around the sort of the potential for a second wave and what might happen next time. So we're already thinking ahead as to how it might react at that point. And we're also thinking how what that new normal also looks like. And one of the things that we've always done here in the past is weddings and wedding receptions and whatever. So it's just thinking in the future, what will new business look like in that particular area? And finally, Martin, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, programme today, given the years of experience you have in the industry prior to the COVID-19 situation, but also this experience you now have of trying to sort of feel your way through a crisis uh, of this magnitude, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was maybe starting out in business and was venturing into their first day in a leadership role, what advice would you give them? I think the key word is communication. It's about having in your mind what it is you want to achieve and then being able to communicate that sense of aspiration and target to those people you're working with, those people you're responsible for, so that you know the successful teams are the ones who do have that clear focus that's shared by everybody. And that is the one thing I'd say. It's about identifying what it is you're trying to achieve and to communicate that to everybody in the team. And then you yourself being seen to actually do all those processes and being part of that. I think here it's been really helpful that, as I said before, you know, two owners have been here for over 30 years. They almost embody the mermaids. They are the mermaids themselves. Mm. It's been very inspiring what we've seen from uh, certain people, uh, hasn't it, during this period? Absolutely right, Martin. And I have to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And I sincerely hope there will be some positive news uh, to share over the next uh, few months as to how things are getting on. In fact, I think it would be brilliant from a listener's perspective as well to have you back on the show in a few months just to see how things are getting along under the new normal. I'll be more than happy to come on and um, tell a bit more about our story. Yes, absolutely. I think it would be fantastic, Martin. It's been a real pleasure having you discuss um, your experience and your take on leadership with us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the world because we're still not quite sure which direction the pandemic will be going in. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's going to be all upward trajectory from here. 
Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the programme. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Martin Blinko speaking, Guest Relations Manager at the Mermaid Inn. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has assumed the role of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his playing days, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for England skipper in history and I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. All of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. 
in those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch a trap bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. 
And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on Hollywood soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but hmm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt 
no. at how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing 
prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's gonna be the lords one right that sh sh of course yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.